I want to tell you a story that takes place last year at uh, Harbor, the Pepperdine Bible Lectures. Many of you have been to the Pepperdine campus in Malibu, and you've experienced their big annual Bible lectureship. It's this big week-long event with worship and teachings, events, and fellowship. Hundreds of people there from all over. It's kind of like a pilgrimage for some Church of Christ folks. Well, in 2019, I was asked to do one of the keynote lectures there. I was really excited to get to do a teaching in the big lecture hall, Smothers Theater. But I knew that there were some people who didn't like me. I was a little bit nervous because I knew some of the Pepperdine leaders didn't like my teaching style. I could tell. And they knew that I'd be speaking there. And they already had decided they didn't like some of the things that I was saying here at Tri-Valley. They'd previewed my sermons on the website. They didn't like them, which is crazy because, I mean, what's not to like, right? You get it. Anyway, that morning, my talk was going great. Justin led the opening prayer for the session, and I was moving right along. Then all of a sudden, this group of angry guys burst through the door of Smothers Theater. They march up to the front where I'm speaking, and then they threw someone to the ground. They grabbed my microphone, and they said, this is an evil and immoral person. There's no denying it. The video evidence is online. We have every right to get rid of them. If you aren't with us, then you're against us. So Jacob... Are you with us? Okay, so not everything in that story actually happened to me. But this is what happens to Jesus in John 8. He's in Jerusalem teaching during the Feast of Tabernacles when he's interrupted, ambushed, put on the spot by people demanding that he choose a side on an issue and decide whether or not to ruin someone's life. Let's watch this encounter. Let's see how Jesus responds to the accused sinner as well as to the angry mob and then ask ourselves, how can we treat people the way that Jesus did? At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So everything about this situation is violent. Dragging the woman through the streets and throwing her in front of Jesus, demanding a decision on whether or not there would be an immediate and public execution, and orchestrating the whole thing just so that they could accuse and get rid of their opponent, Jesus. This was harsh, rigid, violent, like a bear trap. The goal here was to force Jesus to agree with one of only two positions. Position number one, uphold the law. I mean, the law says that you should stone anyone who commits adultery. And if Jesus says, yep, rules is rules, stoner, then his message of grace and forgiveness is nullified. The other choice, forgive the woman. But if he does that, then he violates the law of Moses, showing that he can't be a true Israelite. And this is what the Pharisees were hoping for all along. This is what they've been saying all along. This man can't possibly be from God. He can't be a prophet. He certainly isn't Israel's Messiah. So they got him. They trapped him. He's stuck in the trap. Either move will ruin his ministry, and they'll run him out of town on a rail. And this isn't Nicodemus going to see Jesus at night. This is right there in the temple courts, right out in public, in front of everybody, with every iPhone streaming directly to social media. So what's Jesus going to do? But Jesus bent down, started to write on the ground with his finger. 
And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So there's a story from the time of Israel's kings where these two young women come to King Solomon with just one baby. One woman says, this is my baby. And the other one says, uh, no, it's my baby. Your baby died and you took mine. No, your baby died and you took mine. It's my baby. No, it's my baby. It's my baby. And then they both turn to the king and they say, well, which one of us gets the baby? And the king says, here's what we'll do. We'll divide the baby in half and each of you gets an equal share. And one lady says, fine with me, then neither of us will have the baby. And the other lady says, no, no, please give the boy to her. I'd rather see my baby with someone else than to see him die. And when she said that, Solomon said, she is the true mother of the baby. This story demonstrates the wisdom that Solomon received from God. In a situation where those demanding justice were only giving two options, either give the baby to her or give the baby to her, the king was able to get to the heart of the issue and come up with a third option. And that's what Jesus does here. With the wisdom that Jesus has from God the Father, he rejects their two options and he comes up with a third one. Let the person who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, the people there who were ready to stone the woman could have easily rejected Jesus' decision. We don't accept those terms. It's stoning time. But they were somehow convicted. They dropped their stones and they went away. And maybe it had something to do with what Jesus wrote on the ground. Writing on the ground was nothing new. This is something that rabbis or teachers would do pretty regularly in the ancient world. It was kind of like the uh, first century version of a whiteboard or PowerPoint. But here, in this story, it becomes one of those details that you sometimes get in the Gospels, but you almost wish they hadn't said it in the first place because you want to know so badly, what is it that Jesus wrote on the ground? It's like if someone says to you, oh man, I just heard the craziest thing. And you go, oh what, tell me what it was. Oh, I, I can't really tell you. Well then why did you mention it in the first place? Just to make me crazy? It's kind of what we get here in John. We don't know what Jesus wrote on the ground, but a lot of people have speculated about it. Maybe he wrote something from the Torah. Maybe he wrote Exodus 23. Do not spread false reports. Do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. Maybe he wrote down a list of all of their sins with no names attached. That would have been playing their game, but maybe it was a gentle reminder that everyone has secret sins that we prefer others not find out about. Some scholars think the reason that he bent down to write on the ground was simply to draw the crowd's attention away from this half-dressed, humiliated woman who was scared to death. Jesus took the spotlight off of her as a simple act of compassion. Well, whatever it was, the writing plus his comment diffused the situation and he saved the woman's life. And he told her, I don't condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. 
And so he did the two things the Pharisees assumed were mutually exclusive, honoring the law of Moses and showing mercy, grace, and forgiveness. It demonstrated the wisdom, the justice, and the compassion of a good king. And Jesus was and is a good king. So, if a disciple of Jesus is someone who follows him so that they can be like him, how can we treat people the way that Jesus treated people after witnessing an encounter like this? What do we do when an angry group of people throws someone at our feet and says, this is an evil and immoral person? There's no denying it. There's video evidence right there online. We have every right to get rid of them. If you aren't with us, then you're against us. So where do you stand? Well, the first thing that I think that we would be wise to emulate is Jesus' ability to diffuse the situation by seeing a third option. The Pharisees try to present a version of the truth that says there are only two options, and you need to pick one of these two. But Jesus, in his wisdom, sees right through that kind of thinking. And that's something that we should learn how to be able to do as well. When I was in college, every student was required to take speech 180. And one thing that we learned in this class was about false dichotomies, presenting two options as the only two options, and then villainizing the people who don't pick the option that you think is the best. Here's an example. Somebody might say, if you don't go to the party with me, you'll just be bored at home by yourself. You're supposed to think, oh no, I don't want to be bored at home. Wait, wait a minute though. I like being home by myself. I might have a great time if I don't go to the party with you. Those aren't the only two options. You're just trying to scare me into doing what you want me to do. Ah, that's right. So we've unlocked the true purpose of a false dichotomy. It's a scare tactic that doesn't leave room for nuance or conversation or creative solutions. This example might seem silly to you, but you'd be surprised how often that this trap works on people. People say things like, if you don't support this war, then you don't support our troops. Those aren't the only two options. If you don't stand for the national anthem, then you don't love our country. Well, those aren't the only two options either. If you believe in science, then you can't believe in religion. I don't think those are the only two options either. There are only two options, Jesus. You either love God's law or you hate God's law. Jesus took a minute to recognize these kinds of statements for what they really are, a trap. These men weren't trying to uphold the law anyway. They were trying to wield the law against Jesus. And they certainly didn't care about the woman on the ground who was collateral damage in their scheme. Here, and in other parts of the Gospels, Jesus sees through the deception of a false dichotomy, and he presents a creative third option. So Jews in first century Palestine were often wondering, do we rebel against the Romans, or do we submit to the Romans? But then Jesus came along and said things like, well, if someone wants to take your shirt, give him your coat as well. If a Roman soldier forces you to carry his pack one mile, carry it two miles. This isn't rebelling or submitting. It's a third option that reflects how things work in God's kingdom. So in order for us to diffuse tense situations, we too need to identify the trap and find a creative solution. Back a while ago when I had jury duty, I was riding BART home from Oakland. When I got on the train, the car was already pretty full, and there was this young guy who was standing next to me who was making everyone nervous. I looked at him, and I quickly guessed that he probably lived on the streets, and he probably had some kind of psychological disorder. 
he was talking to himself a mile a minute. He seemed to be voicing every single thought that came into his head. Many of these thoughts were very angry. Some included racial slurs, and some were comments about the other passengers on the train. And he was directing some of these comments to them. It seemed like some kind of confrontation was inevitable as people on the train were getting more and more agitated by his behavior. Something needed to happen. Uh, we were going to have to either submit to his abuse or risk a dangerous backlash by confronting it. Those seemed like the only two options. And I was there, I didn't really know what to do, but here's what I did. I went up to him and I offered him a handshake and I said, hi, I'm Jacob, how's it going, man? He introduced himself as Dennis and then he proceeded to direct his crazy monologue at me the rest of the train ride home. But this was good because now he wasn't shouting at the other passengers. Uh, he wasn't getting as worked up as he was. He wasn't making everyone in the car nervous, wondering what he might do to them or what they might have to do in response. And so after Dennis got off at his stop, one woman said to me, I think that just saved all of us. And what she meant by that is that it saved the riders of the train from having to endure Dennis. But I think that it also saved Dennis from a potential violent confrontation. Well, in the same way, in John chapter 8, Jesus doesn't just create a solution that saves the meek person from her aggressors. He also saves the aggressors from a violent end as well. Think about it. Can you imagine what stoning someone to death does to your soul? Even if it's deemed legal by the people in charge, that's got to have a lasting effect. It would have further fed into their bloodlust and caused more and more damage. But we see here that Jesus has compassion on everyone. Jesus obviously shows compassion for the woman, but he also has compassion for her accusers as well. He saves the woman, but he also gives the Pharisees an out in this situation. He doesn't expose their personal sins the way that they did with her, though he certainly could have done that. He releases this woman from the punishment of her sin, and he says, neither do I condemn you. And then he releases her from a life of sin, go now and leave your life of sin, but I think that you could say the same thing about the mob. He could have said these same words to the angry mob as they dropped their stones and went home. I don't condemn you either. Go now and leave your life of sin. Christians sometimes struggle with another false dichotomy. When we encounter sin, do we respond with compassion and mercy? Or do we respond with disapproval and correction? We need to see that those are not the only two options, and they're not mutually exclusive. Jesus' response shows that you can do both and more. Neither do I condemn you, but go leave your life of sin. If you read on in the chapter, you see another angry, bloodthirsty mob form against Jesus this time for some claims that he makes about being the Son of God. They're ready to stone him now instead of this woman. But they don't succeed in this instance. But later on in the gospel, we know that they're going to condemn Jesus to death and they will successfully crucify him. And just like Jesus took the spotlight off the shamed woman and put it on himself so that she's not condemned, Jesus takes sin and death off of us and he puts it on himself. And that's the compassion of Jesus that we love. Jesus is willing to endure the pain and rejection if it takes the condemnation away from us and gets us out of the crosshairs. This demonstrates the great love that he has for everyone. For one single accused woman, but also for prideful religious leaders, 
for scared commuters on a BART train, but also for a guy like Dennis who just has a lot of problems. Jesus loves angry social media trolls. He loves pot stirrers. Jesus loves the ignorant, the misinformed, the unloved, hypocrites, the religious, the self-serving, the woke, and the unwoke. He loved all of us so much that he laid down his life for us. Here's a question for us today. Can we love these people as well? Can we stand up for them and give them an out? Can we find creative third options that will show Christ's love and forgiveness and redemption to all people? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commands of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight to life. Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord are true, each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They're sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. They are a warning to those who hear them and there is great reward for those who obey them. How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep me from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I will be free of guilt and innocent of great sin. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer.